You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Morning Ireland, it's 13 minutes past seven. Well, there were fireworks, celebrities and coronavirus restrictions. Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th President of the United States yesterday at his inauguration in Washington, D.C. Moments before, Kamala Harris made history when she became not just America's first woman, but also the first woman of colour to take the oath of Vice President. Welcome to the 59th presidential inauguration. This ceremony is the culmination of 244 years of a democracy. I, Kamala Davy Harris, solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies. This land is your land. This land is my land. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. And will to the best of my ability. Will to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. Thank President. You. It is now my great privilege and high honor to be the first person to officially introduce the 46th President of the United States, Joseph R. Biden, Jr. This is America's day. This is democracy's day. A day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. We can treat each other with dignity and respect. We can join forces, stop the shouting and lower the temperature. For without unity, there is no peace. Only bitterness and fury. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. Indeed, one of the standouts moment of the inauguration there from young Amanda Gorman. But the work begins now. Joe Biden signed 17 executive actions on his first night in office, signing the U.S. back into the World Health Organization and the Paris Climate Accord amongst them. There was time for celebration too, not the usual balls, but a star-studded concert. And I've been hearing more about the new president's busy agenda from our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan. 
So in total, there were 17 actions signed. They were a mixture of executive orders, memorandums and directives to agencies. I suppose you could split them into three themes, maybe undoing Donald Trump policies, tackling the COVID-19 crisis and tackling climate change. So these new measures signed by President Biden included halting the process of withdrawing the U.S. from the World Health Organization, re-entering the U.S. in the Paris Climate Accord, a mask-wearing mandate for federal properties, a new White House office to coordinate the country's coronavirus response. Now, Joe Biden also revoked an emergency declaration that helped fund Donald Trump's border wall. He also ended a travel ban on some majority Muslim countries. Joe Biden also ordered an extension on a moratorium on evictions, and he also asked for the suspension of student loan repayments. Now, future actions will include revoking a ban on military service by transgender Americans and reversing a policy that blocks U.S. funding for overseas programs linked to abortion. Now, Joe Biden began signing these executive orders in the Oval Office, in front of the cameras, in front of the reporters last night. He told them that Donald Trump had left him a note. This is a tradition that the outgoing president leaves the new president a letter. He described it as a very generous letter, but he said he wouldn't be disclosing its contents, at least for now. He also told reporters that there will be a lot more executive orders to be signed in the coming days and weeks. This is going to be the first of many engagements we're going to have in here. And I thought with the state of the nation today, is no time to waste, get to work immediately. As we've indicated earlier, we're going to be signing a number of ex- executive orders over the next uh, several days a week. And I'm going to start today uh, the compounding crisis of covid COVID-19, along with the economic crisis following that, and climate crisis, and racial equity issues, and, you know, uh, some of the executive actions I'm going to be signing today are going to help change the course of the COVID crisis, and we're going to combat climate change in a way that we haven't done so far. It certainly is an ambitious agenda, and he spoke to his uh, staff, Brian, about the long days ahead. What's going to be happening on the first full day in office for the Biden presidency? Yeah, on you today, first full day. He'll begin the day by watching a virtual presidential inaugural prayer service. Then he'll receive his first presidential daily briefing as president in the Oval Office. After that, he'll deliver remarks on his administration's COVID-19 response. He's going to sign more executive orders aimed at tackling the coronavirus. He's going to receive a briefing on vaccine rollouts. Now, there were some other big significant developments last night. It wasn't just about Joe Biden's first night in office. Also a very big night, of course, for the new vice president, Kamala Harris. She administered the oath of office for Three new senators, these were John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. These were the senators that won the Georgia runoff elections and also a new senator by the name of Alex Padilla, the person who was replacing her in her own Senate seat. And what that meant is that officially last night, the Democrats gained control of the U.S. Senate. There is a 50-50 split now in the Senate between Republicans and Democrats, but that gives Kamala Harris the deciding vote in a tie situation. Also last night, we saw the first White House press briefing of the new administration. And remember, as we know, the Trump administration had this tumultuous relationship with the press. The former president used to call reporters fake news and the enemy of the people. White House press briefings were rare. They often contained clashes with journalists and questionable claims, questionable facts. The new White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, held her first briefing last night. She said to reporters that there will be plenty of briefings. She said they may disagree from time to time, but she promised that she would tell the truth. When the president asked me to serve in this role, 
we talked about the importance of bringing truth and transparency back to the briefing room. And he asked me to ensure we are communicating about the policies across the Biden-Harris administration and the work his team is doing every single day on behalf of all American people. There will be times when we see things differently in this room, I mean among all of us. That's okay. Uh, that's part of our democracy. And rebuilding trust uh, with the American people will be central to our focus in the press office and in the White House every single day. Even though there was a pandemic and no parties and balls as usual, there was still a star-studded show, wasn't there, Brian? Yeah, so there were some celebrations. I mean, I was struck yesterday covering the inauguration. I was outside the Capitol building. I was on the National Mall, which would normally be packed with people. There was nobody on it, eerily quiet. And that's what struck me, the lack of in-person participation in any of this inauguration yesterday in terms of members of the public. And that continued into the nighttime celebration element. Normally on inauguration night, there are a series of gala balls and dinners and parties. There was none of that last night. No big in-person celebrations. Instead, they had this televised concert. It was hosted by Tom Hanks. It began with a Bruce Springsteen performance on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Other performers included John Bon Jovi, John Legend, and Katy Perry. She sang her hit Firework as a spectacular fireworks display lit up the night sky over Washington. Now, somewhat surprisingly, yesterday in Joe Biden's address, we didn't hear a Seamus Heaney quote. However, last night, Tom Hanks did make reference to Joe Biden's love of Irish poetry and his love of Seamus Heaney, and he introduced the actor Lin-Manuel Miranda, who read some of the Seamus Heaney poem, The Cure at Troy. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing double-take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain and lightning and storm and a god speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term. It means once, once in, in a lifetime, lifetime that justice, justice can, can rise up, up and hope and history rhyme. That was the poetry. The prose begins today. Now, it's known for its rugged beauty on the Wild Atlantic Way, but Belmullet has a new and unwelcome listing, along with Enniscorthy and Dundalk. It now has the highest rates of COVID-19 infection in the state. Border counties like Monaghan continue to be hard hit. Two GPs dealing with the fallout from these high numbers are Dr Ilona Duffy in Monaghan and Dr Fergal Ruan, a GP in Belmullet. And good morning to you both. And Fergal Ruan, since uh, the days immediately after Christmas, uh, you have been dealing with uh, the fallout uh, from the rise in these COVID numbers. What has it been like? Um, I, the local area, I suppose, is <clears throat> shell-shocked. A lot of people in fear. Um, the figures are staggering. Um, I mean, in the last two weeks alone, we've had 700 positive cases, um, nearly 300 in the fortnight before that. Um, the numbers of people who are dying are into the double digits now. Um, and it's something that we didn't see coming here. Um, you know, uh, up until just around Christmas, we had some sporadic cases, but um, suddenly we just we were thrust into the middle of all this. And you're talking about a, co- a cohort or a community now that's in fear. You're talking about a small area. Um, everybody knows everyone. It's uh, you know everybody knows somebody who's affected their friends, their neighbours, their families, <clears throat> and we're trying to live through it at the moment. 
Belmullet, you've described it at the moment as a, a little COVID enclave almost. It, it is, to all intents and purposes. I mean, you're talking about a very remote area, um, small pockets of population. Um, there's only one big uh, area, that's the town itself, and then you've got a lot of people uh, spread around the area. But, I mean, it is just a, a remote community on its own, to all intents and purposes. Um, and it's, the COVID has arrived here and devastated the area. Um, <clears throat> you've had elderly people dying. You have particularly, it seems, people in their 50s um, who are ending up very sick, um, we've got people in hospital, landing up in hospital on oxygen. There's still people, people in intensive care, and these people are very slow to recover. Um, I mean, what's striking is, I think there's a perception sometimes that, um, you know, the people who do wind up in trouble are older people, but really and truly, the people we're looking at here now are people who, they're premature deaths. These are people, they might have had underlying conditions, they might be a little bit older, um, but these people had many years to live. They were, you know, active in the community. Um, and now we see the outcome of the, uh, the rise in the figures here. It's a shocking <coughs> situation for you in Belmullet. Ilona Duffy, you've been grappling with this in Monaghan uh, because I suppose you were ahead of other areas with high numbers, but it's still going on. Uh, and you've been pointing particularly to the changes in household spread. It's ripping through households. Absolutely, Mary. I think just like Fergal, we've noticed a change this time around in number one, you know, how fast it's spreading. And we and we feel that that's definitely related to the new UK variant. And number two, as Fergal just said, who's being hit hardest with this first time around? It was the older members of our community, especially those in residential units. But this time it's absolutely in the community. It's absolutely people who are a lot younger. Those who will count as middle aged 50s and 60s. They're the people that we're seeing deteriorating and presenting in our COVID hubs and the COVID hubs which have had to be reopened having closed last June um, are busier than ever. They're busier than they were last April, May and June. So I think this this virus has changed. It definitely is more endemic in our communities and it's spreading faster and ripping through families, ripping through workplaces. And, and again, this is creating huge problems because we're not getting a handle on it. Monaghan has probably been, I think it's been the top county now for weeks on end and we're not seeing a drop. Our 14-day average, we're 500 cases ahead of the next highest. So it's of real concern. Uh, Ilona, why are you not seeing a drop, do you believe? Well, I think, number one, we probably have had such high levels all along that therefore it's just passing in the community. And despite the lockdown, you know, people still are meeting in small ways. I suppose we're, we're hoping that people are just limiting their contacts to those that they live with. But people are working and more people are working. We, we have a lot of um, industries that would remain open even during the lockdown because they're food related. We have a lot of people who are non-nationals and probably living in more crowded environments, traveling together to work. So again, we are continuing to see them as, as kind of a high rate area of our population that are high num higher numbers and again this lockdown is very different you know we are meant to be all working from home we're all meant to be avoiding meeting each other but again I think you just have to I've just to walk out into Monaghan town at lunchtime and coming home in the evening to see the much higher rates of traffic to see much higher flow of people in the shops and round on the streets than there were compared to let's say last mm -hmm. April and May so I think you know people just while they are adhering better to the guidelines they're still not adhering fully not to enough. them. And, and Fergal clearly you know from what you've been saying there's enormous strain on you and your colleagues and on the the town and community around Bell Mullet. What more could be done maybe to help you or what more do you need? Well I mean it is having uh, a, a severe uh, strain on the infrastructure. At the moment we've got um, 
We've actually got two paramedics. Uh, one of them is in hospital. Um, you know, so our local ambulance service is affected by that. Uh, I know that one of the pharmacies only had three staff available to work uh, one of the days last week. Um, I've got COVID myself at the moment and I can't get a locum. Um, so I've been working uh, on the phone, obviously, not um, yeah. not uh, face-to-face with people. But it, um, That's a shocking situation. And are, uh, have, you, have you symptoms, Fergal? Um, well, I'm improving now, fortunately. Um, but the first couple of days with us, um, they weren't pleasant to, you know, to say, understate things. So you're trying um, to operate your practice at the moment, working in isolation, uh, struggling with COVID yourself. That's well, I have to. You've got three local um, GPs in the area. You've got these savage figures, um, 700 in the last two weeks. So I suppose, you know, I have to. I have no choice. There is no locum availability at the moment. So, uh, you know, I'm doing my best. Um, I suppose the community is all rowing together. You see the local shops delivering. You know, people are supporting each other. And, uh, I mean, that's one of the great strengths of the area. (coughs) Excuse me, that, um, you know, people do row together in in a time like this. Has the travel stopped into Belmullet? I know, uh, I think, you know, people pointed to three issues, really, the, the, the travel into Belmullet over the Christmas period, increased socialising, and would you argue as well a too early a lifting of, of the lockdown we had pre-Christmas? I I think it was inevitable. I mean, it was, it was obvious to me that there was going to be a spike in uh, the number of cases. Now, I don't think, I certainly didn't foresee uh, the spike that came. Um, I mean, really, the first indication I got was the week immediately after Christmas. I was on call. Um, I was on call one of the days, and just from nine o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock in the evening, my phone literally did not stop ringing. Um, but I do see now that the numbers of people coming into the area are are falling. Um, you know, I suppose <laughs> there's, a, there's a certain element that people aren't welcome down here okay. at the moment. D- well, Dr. Dr. Fergal Ruan, we wish you uh, a, a recovery very soon. And Dr. Ilona Duffy in Monaghan, thank you both very much for joining us. Six days ago, the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, along with Minister of State, Josepha Madigan, announced that on January the 21st, tomorrow, children with additional educational needs would begin a phased return to school. But last night, with just over 24 hours to go, Minister Foley announced that she was abandoning her plan. Talks between her department and the trade unions, FORSA and the INTO, on how to bring the 23,000 or so students and their teachers back safely, broke down. Our reporter Amy Nereida has been getting reaction from teachers, parents and advocates. Her report begins with a special needs assistant who didn't want to be named. I'm working as an SNA in a school in Killarney, County Kerry. I would have reservations about going back into the classroom. Of course, the priority is the children and going back to school, but when it's safe to do so for us all. I personally would love to be back in school. It was lovely being back in September, but unfortunately our numbers are just so high. We're dealing with lots of different families. We don't know who they're mixing with. They don't know who we are mixing with. For me, I have a child at home. Um, He has a chronic lung disease. At the moment, I would have no one to mind him. And I would be petrified of A, bringing something into school to the other children and to the other staff, and B, bringing it home. We are in the middle of a pandemic where one of the main objections is the social distance. And when you are working with special needs and special classes, that just isn't possible. They need you right beside them. Adam Harris, CEO of As I Am, Ireland's National Autism Charity. Nothing but heartbreak and a sense of letdown 
for the third time our children thought they were returning to school and for the third time departments and stakeholders have failed to deliver that. I think in all this discussion and all this back and forth between the department and stakeholders, our young people were the, the lowest priority and the people with the least voice. And I think that's just completely unacceptable. And it really does um, go against Ireland's commitments under the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. What our families need today is clarity. What we need to hear from the minister today is how that would be vindicated. What we need to hear from stakeholders today is when can we have our schools reopen? Where are the goalposts? And we need to address that issue in a very clear framework. We're an outlier in Europe. We're not talking about making this compulsory. We're talking about making it an option for families. My name is Mary Doyle-Kent. I'm a mother of three uh, nearly adult boys and I live in County Wexford. We've been at home since the 8th of March with our son Pierce. Pierce is 17 years old, but he has angel man syndrome and he has several um, medical problems. He's medically very fragile. So we've kept Pierce home from school. Pierce is nonverbal. He has epilepsy. He has cyclical vomiting. I've just heard the news that schools won't be opening on Thursday. I'm not really surprised. Um, I'm I'm very, very heartbroken for the families that are in absolute crisis now, for the, the parents and kids that are on their knees and not able to cope. On the other side, as I said, I'm not really surprised because I really believe that there, there hasn't been good communication between all the different stakeholders. Um, we need to sit down and remember that the children are the, the, the people that should be the, the, at the core of all of this. So, so we need to understand, you know, which children need to go back into school as soon as possible. Pierce won't be going back to school until he has his vaccination. And I'm really asking the Minister for Health and the Minister for Education to put special needs children and adults really at the very, very top of the priority list. That's Mary Doyle-Kent ending that report by Amy Nereida. Now, Boris Johnson's government is refusing to give full diplomatic status to the EU ambassador to London, a move that was criticised by Fine Gael TD Neil Richmond as absolutely petty when he raised it in the Doyle last night. And this happens as Michel Barnier has warned about the border and trade disruptions that Brexit cannot mean business as usual. David O'Sullivan is the former EU ambassador to the United States. David O'Sullivan, good morning to you. Neil Richmond says it's absolutely petty. Is this just a, a petty diplomatic spat or is it more significant in your view? Well, good morning, uh, Anya. And uh, yes, look, I was just listening to your, your previous commentary. It's almost embarrassing, isn't it, with, with the crisis facing the country and Europe of the pandemic and all the problems associated that we even have to have a con this kind of conversation about the diplomatic status. Uh, it is very petty. It's very small minded. I don't know why the UK government has chosen to take this uh, issue up in the normal course of events. Uh, the new uh, European ambassador to London would have been accorded full diplomatic status, uh, as is the case all around the world uh, in 140 more or more countries. Uh, so I really don't understand what is the point of, of suddenly making an issue of this unless, as you say, it's it's trying to send a signal that uh, the United Kingdom doesn't actually want the best of relations with the European Union as such, which I, I sincerely hope would not be the case. We were talking to Tom Wright from the Brookings Institution in Washington yesterday. He's been tweeting that this move by London will not go down well with the new Biden administration and the White House. 
Well, uh, Tom, Tom would know that, that better than I, but I, I, I think the general perception would be, what is the point? This is just a kind of small-minded, uh, narrow kind of, you know, trying to score, to score a point. Why? Uh, you know, I can't even imagine, frankly, that anyone in, in the UK would even have noticed uh, if the uh, UK, the new European Union ambassador was treated in the normal way. I can't imagine people on the streets complaining about this, you know. So it's, it's really it's hard to understand. And unfortunately, you know, it, it, your, your listeners may be thinking, my goodness, what, 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 is, what does this matter? In, in protocol terms, these things do send signals. They, they, they send a, a message as to how you regard the relations with, mm-hmm. the, with the, the, the country or, or organization concerned. And I think treating the EU in this way does send an unfortunate message from the, the, the British government as to how they want that relationship uh, to, to go forward. And it's bad tactics, isn't it, when we have, you know, Scottish fishermen up in arms because they can't export their fish, musicians can't tour. The message from Brussels, on the other hand, we heard Michel Barnier, this is what Brexit means. There's still a lot of talking and good relations need doing if these trade problems are to be fixed in any way. Absolutely. And uh, the uh, EU ambassador in London would be an important channel of communication, as as is as will be the case for the British ambassador in, in Brussels. Uh, and as you say, that there's there are a lot of things still to be sorted out between us. The the, the GCA, which was finally agreed uh, on Christmas Eve, is, is not the end of the story. Uh, it's not even it's, you know, at best the, the, the end of the beginning. But there's still so much work that will need to be done to, to try and make this relationship work more smoothly. We need good functioning diplomatic channels and uh, this approach Mm -hmm. by the British government is definitely not going to help that. You had uh, a similar experience yourself, David O'Sullivan, didn't you, uh, during uh, the Trump presidency when they wanted to take the EU down a peg or two, isn't that right? Yes, it was it was slightly different because they didn't want to actually affect my diplomatic my diplomatic status as such, but they wanted to affect my my protocol ranking and put me constantly at the bottom of the list. Yeah, it was another, uh, frankly, you know, a, 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 another petty spat uh, which was uh, probably got much more coverage than than it, than it justified. But people did get quite upset about it, uh, and it was finally rectified. The, the the Trump administration actually reversed their position, and my successor was reinstated into. Into that, into that position. So the problem was solved. Let's hope this one is too. David O'Sullivan, Indeed. thank you for your time this morning. The Health Minister Stephen Donnelly will be asking his colleagues at Cabinet to approve a plan this morning to pay GPs and pharmacists to give a COVID vaccine to one and a half million people in their practices and in mass vaccination centres. There have been another 27 deaths from the virus on the island of Ireland reported over the last 24 hours. Dr Dennis McCauley is chairman of the GP committee of the IMO who represents doctors. Uh, Dennis McCauley, good morning. Hello, hello, Gavin. Uh, The deal first, uh, €35 per vaccine, €60 if there's two doses, €120 an hour in big vaccine centres. Are you happy with that? We are. We didn't want this deal to get in the way of actually um, uh, taking out the vaccine, rolling out the vaccine, and we're very pleased that it's going to be presented to Cabinet today. I think... In order to get a vast mass mass vaccination going, really, general practice has to be a core um, component of that. So, yes, we're happy. When do you expect to start? Oh, we could start yesterday. Um, You know, basically, as soon as we have AstraZeneca 
vaccine in the country and it's approved by the European Medicines Agency. You know, you know, it's a vaccine that's easily stored. We're hoping that there's going to be limited need for supervision following the, the actual vaccine. So it would, it would be quite like the flu vaccine, we hope. Um, so therefore, as you can imagine, general practitioners are very good at rolling out the vaccine in a very prompt and um, um, efficient way. So this is really what we want. Are you getting many calls and, and, and what are you telling patients who are calling asking you when they're going to get it, particularly, for example, people over the age of 65 who will be next in line? Yeah, I think, Evan, we're getting calls. I've been stopped on the street. Everybody is really interested in this. I think everybody wants, everybody knows that the vast, the over 67% of the population needs this. But most of the population also recognize that we have to do this in a very efficient and an ethical way so that the, those that need it most get it get it first. So what, what I'm going to ask people is don't call us. We will call, call you, really. We are we're going to be asked to identify particular groups. When vaccine becomes available, we're going to define how what, how much, much vaccine we have and who we can uh, who we can actually vaccinate so we will have we'll know how much vaccine we're going to get we'll identify the group that we that that, that is most in need we will contact them they will be invited in to come uh, in for a vaccine and then we'll arrange their actual second dose so there's a case of we will contact you when your core group is ready to have a vaccine and we have the vaccine to give you so don't call us we'll call you exactly please <laughs> although i'm quite happy to talk about it on the street when somebody meets and actually wants to chat to me about it who do you expect to be giving it to first oh i think it's the over i think it's the over 70s with multi-morbidities are the first grouping that we will be involved in and i would imagine that because of the amount of vaccine that may be available we start at the, at the older more uh, group first the over 85s even the over 80s work our way down to the to the to the 70 year olds i think because of the the nature of this population there's multi-morbidity they're a complicated population they're actually used to coming to the gp to get their vaccine they, they will be uh, vaccinated exclusively in general practice dennis i know you can't answer this but there will be plenty of people listening this morning so for example if you're over the age of 70 and you don't have uh, a pre-existing condition or one of the conditions that would put you on the priority list, can you re realistically expect to be vaccinated this side of Easter? Oh, yeah, I think so. Just if you, uh, Gavin, if you give me, if you give general practice the supply, we will actually deliver. Remember that oh, it's over, it's, we're, the group that will be going, will, it will be age-related uh, uh, sort of uh, um, stratification initially. The older people who will be called an independent of whether they have an actual condition or not, we, in six weeks, we, we gave uh, a million vaccinations, a million flu vaccinations just, just, just before um, um, Christmas. And the reason that, the reason that it took us six weeks was that the, the actual supply was actually quite stuttering. So if we get the vaccine, we will give it, and we will give it in a very efficient and a very ethical way. Dr. Dennis McCauley, Chairman of the GP Committee of the IMO, thank you very much for speaking to us this morning. And we're almost one week on from publication of the Mother, Mother and Baby Homes report and the fallout is continuing. The Catholic Primate of All Ireland, Archbishop Eamon Martin, told RT Radio's This Week programme that religious orders may be willing to discuss the possibility of providing compensation to survivors. But despite accepting that some of the conditions in these institutions were harrowing, he has been criticised for his comment saying religious orders should not be scapegoated for what happened. 
I, I think that that's something that the minister and whatever scheme is put in place for redress will be able to establish. But could I just say one thing? I would be disappointed if you know we were having read the commission's report this scapegoat, I think, the religious congregations. You know, I think they were commissioned by the state and by local authorities and county councils. They were expected to intervene when the rest of society had basically banished these mothers and their unborn children and infants. And they too were Irish women who answered a call to serve and they found themselves kind of on the front line of this. That was Archbishop Eamon Martin. Susan Lohan is co-founder of the Adoption Rights Alliance and a member of the Collaborative Forum on Mother and Baby Homes. And Susan, you're welcome to Morning Ireland. Good morning, Mary. Uh, the Archbishop, he, he addressed many issues during the course of his This mm. Week interview yesterday. He talked about uh, the lack of information around the burial sites and he appealed for information. He addressed the issue of reparations. But it is this comment, uh, that, that has mm. this scapegoating comment, it's particularly upset you and other survivors. Uh, why yeah. so? Well, I, I generally found his his apology, I, I felt it was a, a masterclass on obfuscation, and he attempted on so many occasions to diminish the role of the Catholic Church. He kept referring to religious orders, made no reference to the fact that it was the Catholic Church under his predecessors who dictated how society responded to unmarried mothers and their children, and the fact that they tendered for this business, it was a business they received government funding to run these places behind the high walls. They made profit from the unpaid labor of the women, from the, the piecework that the women did in those institutions, and the fact that the women did all of their own laundry, cooked all of their own meals, did all of the cleaning. But of course, the bottom line is that the church profited from the trafficking of children externally to the U.S. and, of course, internally to what they regarded as good Catholic families. And for that, they, they received so many donations, um, and that's been completely disregarded by Eamon Martin. But can he ever say enough to satisfy... To yes, satisfy you could. and other survivors, he talked about the shame. He he mm. talked about um, how women were shamed and stigmatised, and and mm. and and his his sadness that this happened. Right. It didn't happen on his watch. No, it didn't. But it happened as a result, a direct result of the attitudes ingrained in Irish society by the organisation of which he is the both the spiritual and the managerial head. And I felt that his comments about sadness, uh, he was attempting, he, he swept up all of Ireland in that comment. Let the people of Ireland speak for themselves. Let Eamon Martin speak for the Catholic Church and all of his predecessors. Um, I would actually draw an analogy between what his predecessors did to what Trump did last week. So his predecessors, they they belted the pulpit every, every weekend at at Sunday Mass, told people how to treat these unmarried mothers and their children. So having radicalized them, essentially, he now wants to put this distance between his organization and what society did. And that's no different to what happened in the capital uh, you in know, Washington last week. For those that would say you are being unfair to Archbishop Martin and to the church uh, and to those who would say that society did play a part. These, these homes were subject to inspection mm. by the state. Uh, it was families 
who, who in many cases placed young girls in these institutions. Uh, to those who would say that the Archbishop I is right in how he set out the narrative of that time, uh, what would you say? And he, he's not the only one who talked about societal responsibility. Mm. But you see, that's the get-out-of-jail cards that they've been given by the Commission. Uh, it's astonishing that in his statement yesterday, he referred to, you know, community, society, the Catholic uh, religious orders, and the unmarried fathers about them paying reparations. Now, that is such nonsense, as if the unmarried fathers were some sort of collective who amassed great wealth in the, <laughs> in the duration the of the Didn't the report also refer to fathers and families? Mm. Well, again, I think it's becoming increasingly evident that survivors are probably going to, be, are going to ask for the findings of the Commission either to be reviewed or set aside. And I welcome Regina Doherty's um, comments last night it's about time that the women from Fine Gael came forward and she has been talking about having the Commission's findings reviewed. Yes, yeah, that's Senator Regina Doherty. She called yes. it a callous report on RT Radio yesterday yes. and called, as you yes. say, for the independent review. What form could an independent review take, do you think, Susan? Well, I think the, we certainly have um, allies in the UN who'd be very, very willing to, to take part in such a review. I think it should include... Uh, international figures because so often those of us in Ireland we, we, we've become desensitised to the various church-state scandals that have engulfed us over the last two decades. So the likes of Felice Gare who responded so compassionately to uh, Maeve Rourke's testimony about the conditions mm -hmm. for uh, women in the Magdalene laundries she would be one very excellent candidate who could potentially okay. share uh, such a group. Uh, uh. And Susan, just to move on to the vaccine trials, which mm. are also highlighted in a comprehensive chapter in the report, uh, uh, do you believe that uh, those companies that, that were involved, uh, that they should be stepping up and that they should be asked in some way to mm. contribute to some form of redress? Absolutely, because they have admitted that they breached uh, the guidelines regarding vaccine trials that were in place even at that time. And it's, it's, it's astonished all of us who've, who've had a chance to read some of the report that the Commission could make a bold statement about nobody having been harmed by these four and one and five and one vaccines. There has no been no longitudinal study. And the Commission didn't even inquire from the vaccine, uh, well, participants, uh, what state their, uh, their health was in 2021. So that, for certain, that conclusion should be set aside. For now, Susan, thank you very much for joining us. Susan Lohan there, co-founder of the Adoption Rights Alliance. The EU and the US have both demanded the release of opposition politician Alexei Navalny from Russian detention. Mr Navalny was arrested by police soon after his flight from Germany landed in Moscow last night. He's being held for breaching his parole conditions. He was returning to the country five months after he was almost killed in a nerve agent attack in Siberia. He blamed that on the Russian authorities. Russia denies it. We can talk now to Evan Gershkovich from the Moscow Times. Evan, do we know this morning where is um, Mr. Navalny? 
No, uh, his uh, associates and his allies are still uh, looking for him. They suspect that he's at a police station uh, not far from the airport uh, where he landed, which is just outside of Moscow. And they overnight uh, were taking turns standing outside of that uh, police station in, in temperatures well below freezing. Uh, but his lawyer has still not been allowed to see him. Uh, she's currently at that police station, and she's been demanding to see her client, and she, uh, as recently as 10, 15 minutes ago, as Alex was saying, she still has not been allowed to see him. Uh, so they're uh, saying they're not totally sure where he could be. They're assuming at that police station, but they, their guess is as good as anybody's. Now, the Kremlin has repeatedly described Mr. Navalny as a nobody. Vladimir Putin won't even say his name. Yet the authorities went to an awful lot of trouble last night uh, for someone they describe as nobody to have a hero's homecoming. Yeah, I mean, this has been the pattern with Navalny for a decade now. He is, you know, the most recognizable opposition figure in Russia. He's probably the only one who can be considered really any sort of uh, threat to the president. Um, and, and for a decade, they've been saying he's, you know, just a nobody, just a blogger, uh, that, you know, they, you know, they never mentioned him by name. But then at the same time, yesterday, they shut down any air traffic into one of Moscow's major airports for uh, over an hour. Um, so it's hard to say, you know, at the same time as they're saying that, He's a nobody, but you don't really shut down air traffic to one of your major airports uh, in the capital of the country for over an hour, if that's the case. I've heard many commentators in this part of the world describe what happened yesterday in Moscow as a sign of weakness on the part of the Kremlin. Is that fair? Um, I've been thinking about that myself uh, for the past few days, you know, expecting him to be arrested when he returns. And in, in some ways... Uh, that's not clear at this point. One of the major, uh, you know, moments of the political calendar coming up this year are the parliamentary elections. Uh, Navalny is obviously, you know, as the major player, uh, would be able to rally support for opposition candidates running in those elections, to rally people on the streets out of those elections. And if he's locked away, um, he won't be able to do that. Uh, the other point is that, uh, despite the fact that he's the most recognizable opposition figure, despite the fact that you know globally he's known. At home, he has really little uh, support. Uh, so he, you know, over the past decade, being criticized on state TV channels, not being mentioned by name, uh, he, he only carries about 20% approval rating, according to independent polls uh, here. And about 50% of people don't even believe that he was poisoned uh, by uh, Russian authorities. So in, in some ways, uh, we have to see how it plays out, but it could be a, he could have, you know, just handed... Uh, the Kremlin an easy victory in this case by, you know, they're able to put him away for three and a half years, which is what the sentence that he's facing is, it could be just an easy solution for them. Of course, Mr. Navalny himself was facing you know, an impossible choice, whether he, if he stayed abroad and becomes a sort of dissident emigre, uh, that's not much help to his cause either. So, you know, he picked, obviously, the more difficult of the two options, and now we're just going to have to see what the Russian authorities do. Yeah, because um, if he is put away for a considerable period of time, does the Kremlin have a strategy to deal with that? Because it's been said his supporters, thousands of whom turned out at the at the airport originally to greet him, would turn him into a Mandela-type figure. 
There's obviously talk of that. There's rumor of that. But uh, we do have to remember that his support is quite small. Uh, so even in 2019, uh, when we saw big, uh, what we called large protests uh, here in Moscow, when opposition candidates were uh, blocked from balloting in local elections, Navalny was able to rally protests here in Moscow that lasted about a summer. At the peak of those protests, we saw 60,000 people on the streets. Uh, in a city of 12 million people, in a country of 145 million people, that is not uh, too significant. The Kremlin really easily handled those protests. The uh, Russian authorities threw something like, it was about a dozen people in jail for sentences from a year to four years. They ended up releasing some people early, not even putting people in jail. Uh, you know, sort of the threat of the crackdown loomed over okay. it, and uh, everybody dispersed. So, it, again, it, it just, it's hard to predict whether there would be such a massive response in Russia to Navalny being put in jail for that long. Okay. Evan, we're very grateful to you for taking our call this morning. Thank you. Evan Gershkovich from the Moscow Times. Now, the total number of Irish people who have died from COVID-19 stands at 2,768, according to the HBSC this morning. Those are the numbers, the hard statistics, but Martin Ward has a story to tell about the heartbreaking and very human reality behind some of those numbers. Martin Ward, good morning to you. Hello, Anya. We really appreciate you coming on to talk to us because you've come on to share your story, which is the story of each of your parents uh, who've become two of those awful COVID numbers we're so familiar with now. Yeah, let me see. Um, Mum and Dad, they're just, well, they died there back in November. And again, like I kind of went back to work, like I got two weeks off. Um for the bereavement, one week for education, uh, parent, and then back to work again then, like, but, uh, the second wave, or the, sorry, the third wave kind of hit there, um, after Christmas time, and I work in UHG operating theatres, so after Christmas, basically, all the elective surgery's been cancelled, and we're doing urgent and elective work, sorry, urgent and emergency, um, so, again, we're kind of very busy as it is, like a lot of staff have been moved, uh, redeployed up to intensive care, and we'll be working with patients with COVID, and general patients, so we'll be taking full precautions and basically looking after them whenever they're with us. And being a nurse, that meant, and again, I, I can't imagine what it's like to lose a parent, not, not let alone two. Uh, in the middle of all these restrictions, but because you're a nurse, y you were actually able to hold your father's hand at the end. Is that right, Martin? Yeah. Um, I, whenever I got the call, like on Monday, that my mother died, like um, I got a few calls during the night, Sunday night, until Monday morning. So um, it was really the it was around eight o'clock. I was rushing to kind of get a funeral suit and get up the road and up to Derry. Um, and the consultant phoned me to say that the father, he was doing well, and then he just uh, completely collapsed, and they thought that he would have hours to uh, live. So rushed up then up to what I called Derry, um, to see my father. Um, again, yeah, I kind of had to make the decision then, like the, the consultant just kind of told me that they did everything possible to 
ventilate them, um, get oxygen on these lungs. Those lungs basically were very, very stiff, um, and they found it very difficult to keep them alive. So I stayed there with my father, like, you know, I held his hand, watched the monitor as his blood pressure went down, as his heart rate went down, as he had a heart attack, um, and it completely collapsed. So that's what kind of people don't really see whenever they're, let me see, um, going about their normal business. Um, a lot of people, I know, a lot of people find you're getting blasé about it, like, because they see other people get it, like, and they're getting mild symptoms. But there's the other side of it, too, that destroys lives. So that's what we're kind of basically in for now at the minute, and that's what we're seeing at the minute with a lot of people dying because of the high incidence rates. Look, we can only be grateful to you that, that in your grief and in your loss, you're still there on the front line and looking after other people. And you're sharing your story. And just if you'd maybe tell people, Martin, who are listening, why you're sharing this story, which can't be easy for you. Again, we're under massive pressure at the minute. Like, um, the theatre staff, the nursing staff in hospitals... Um, there's a lot of people going down sick because of the high incidence rates. It means there's more pressure then on the hospital staff to properly look after people that are coming in. And there's a lot of people that are coming into the hospitals at the minute that needs urgent care. So, again, it goes back. We need to get the incidence rates back. We need to go back to social distancing. Um, just... Uh, let me see, only essential journeys, staying in, maybe going out for a walk, um, wearing face masks. So, like, even the girls, like, they were up, they did a 20-hour shift there, like, in theatre two nights ago. They're under massive pressure, like, uh, a lot of people are not getting sleep, they're afraid of bringing COVID back home to their family, and then their family's suffering because of it. So, we just kind of, we need to get the incidence rates down, otherwise... We can't give people the care that they deserve in the hospitals. And then there's more pressure on intensive care beds then. And unfortunately, you think more people will die. Look, we, as I say, so many people are so grateful for the sacrifices that you and your colleagues are making. And we hope that you're able to get some time to care for yourselves as well for so many others. Martin Ward, thank you so much for talking to us on Morning Ireland this morning. It's nine minutes to nine. It might be halfway around the world, but a major human rights abuse allegation surrounding a Colombian coal mine is set to hit the spotlight in Ireland today because of links to the state-owned ESB. Two campaign groups have made a legal complaint against the ESB for its connection to the Syria-owned coal mine in Colombia. The two, Global Legal Action Network and Christian Aid Ireland, have today lodged a joint complaint to the OECD about the issue and specifically about the ESB's connection to the site. I'm joined by Garodo Kuhn now, who's Director of Global Legal Action Network, to tell us more about this. Garod, good morning. Good morning. Uh, will you tell us a little bit more about the background to this case and the concerns surrounding the mine? 
Uh, Surion is a coal mine located in northern Colombia, and it is Latin America's largest open-cast mine. And for years, this site has been linked to serious human rights and environmental abuses, which primarily affect the indigenous communities there. Um, so last year, for example, about half a billion litres of liquid waste were poured into local waterways. It's displaced about 35 indigenous villages, and it's been associated with severe air pollution, giving rise to hundreds of thousands of respiratory cases every year. And so we've decided to, working closely with Christian Aid, to submit uh, complaints against business entities associated with this mine, including the parent companies, the Dublin-based sales arm of the mine, and the ESB for links to these severe human rights harms. And with the ESB specifically, we're arguing that they have failed to take the necessary actions expected of them uh, under the OECD guidelines to identify and prevent uh, human rights abuses uh, associated with the mine. The ESB says uh, that it stopped importing coal from that mine in 2018 and even in the, the three years before that uh, it purchased uh, I think just 2% of the mine's output. Uh, is it fair to be pursuing them? Well, it is. these harms have occurred um, and it's not like they've been remediated. The communities continue to suffer and the ESB has contributed to that by through its contractual arrangements with the mine. Um, furthermore, the idea that they have uh, halted all imports has not been verified in any documentation. And the, furthermore, the ESB has never publicly committed to permanently terminating its relationship with the mine. In fact, in late 2018, uh, the ESB joined a working group to monitor, continue monitoring mines in Colombia um, for purchasers. Uh, is and this that Better Coal? Uh, the Better Coal Working Group, yes. This is the, so this, this organization, it's independent of the coal mining industry, is that correct? Yes, there's a Better, better Coal uh, Code of which uh, assesses the mines and there's a new working group which ESB is still a part of, which means it's still potentially prospecting coal from this mine. And so, yes, a better coal initiative is an independent initiative. You, you've made, you, you're making this complaint to the OECD. What do you want mm -hmm. the ESB to do, uh, or, or what would you hope this complaint could achieve? Well, we would expect the OECD national contact point to uphold this complaint. Um, these are well-documented human rights concerns, and there have been numerous rulings from Colombia's highest courts um, backing, uh, repeating very much what we've uh, concluded in our report. And we would expect that the OECD would require the ESB to end its relationship with the mine, to issue a formal apology to the communities who've been Im impacted. And furthermore, the ESB ought to adopt, as a state-owned entity, a human rights policy. Uh, and this should be applied throughout its supply chain. It's, it's remarkable that the ESB has been able to purchase this coal for years despite well-publicized serious human rights harms. Okay, Gerwith O'Cuan, thank you very much, Director of Global Legal Action Network. They've called it their field of dreams. The Waterford women's Gaelic football team are the first in the country to own their own pitch. It's an 11-acre site beside the Waterford Greenway on the edge of Dungarvan at Ballon Road. Edel Curry from the Waterford LGFA joins us now. Edel, it must have great views being so close to the Greenway. Um, it's been a long road to get here. Why did you have to do it? 
Hi, Audrey. How are you? Yes, it was just, um, it's fantastic news coming through this morning that we are the first ladies county boards to own our own, our own field outright. It actually started back in 2015, so we're going back six years ago. A field development subcommittee was formed by the Washford Ladies Gaelic Football Association. We went back six years because there was a need for the pitch in Washford Ladies um, it was our vision at the time to own our own grounds outright. I suppose like every other county board in Ireland, we rely on the men's local GA clubs to use their facilities and we are extremely, extremely grateful to the GA clubs. But it came to a time whereby we wash for ladies just needed to be independent and to be able to hold the likes of their own county finals, to be able to have structure for the county teams in terms of where they're going to train. It was kind of going day to day, week to week. They were tra traversing the country, not knowing where their next training session was going to be. So back in 2015, what we did was we put together a little, a little development, a field development subcommittee. We sat down with our main sponsor, who are LLS Dodge. They've been there with Walsh for Ladies with 20 years. And it was agreed that we needed to start a fundraise to start off our plans. I suppose with our field, Audrey, um, we had to start from scratch. Like we couldn't go near the main income stream, say that is needed for the day-to-day -day running of the county boards. We really had to think outside the box. And what we did was we had five fundraisers. We had two race days there at Punchestown Racecourse, two golf classics at the Hermitage Golf Club and a local dog night here called Cone Dog Track. That was the first part of the hurdle. Then the second part was we're, um, we're in County Waterford. We needed to find a suitable field mid-county that would suit all of our clubs. So if clubs the likes of Common Rangers up in North County Waterford, Ballyduff Upper, West County Waterford, locally here in Dungarvan Town, you have Abbeyside, Dungarvan, you have Kilrossan, you have Brickies, and then move down towards the city, the east, you have Aaron's Own and you have Galtier. So we had to find that mid-county location to make it suitable for all our girls. So yeah, thankfully we did. And we have a greenfield site here just yeah. right beside the greenway. So it's one side of the field is the greenway, <laughs> one side is the road. Girls can travel by bike, walk, car. It's just so accessible. It, and it, really, and it really will look brilliant. It, it, will, it will be right up there with, with any other team and what they have in order to prepare. If the men ask nicely, will you let them use it maybe the odd time? Of course, I think we more than owe them, absolutely, after years and years of borrowing. Yes, absolutely. It's, well, just, look, it, it's just fantastic. It is brilliant. And congratulations. And it's, it's, it's well you. earned. Thank you very much. Adele Curry from the Waterford LGFA. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.